This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCastNet. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we talk about the order of makers. And then with the, a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss volume one of Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. In the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. This time, we're going to be talking about the Order of Makers. So we're moving on to another of the Orders of the, of the Invisible Church. Uh, we're going to be talking about Makers this time around. This is another Order in the uh, Invisible Church. Uh, we talked about Vance's last time, and now we're going to talk about the Order that instead of doing traditional spell casting, they build objects. They craft their magic into devices and artifacts. Um, and one of the selling points on makers is that if you are a player who isn't interested in traditional spell casting, this might be the order that you want to get into because you're going to be building stuff uh, instead of casting magic missile. Um, which gives me a lot to think about because I do have, I do have one player who is super uninterested in casting spells. So maybe this would be something she'd be interested in. Um, this, this and possibly our next order, which we'll talk about the Goetics, but we will save that discussion for another uh, segment. Yeah. Goetics might do it. Uh, I'm also very curious about apostates and how they're going to interact with the whole system. So the, the makers are going to be focusing their magic through the objects that they create. And the Kickstarter page that talks about makers makes a note of saying that they're going to be determining the capabilities of the objects that they're crafting. And Monty Cook goes into a little more detail in the YouTube video that they posted, part four of the Invisible Sun Q&A. Uh, there's a link in the show notes for that one, as well as the article about makers. He goes into a little more detail saying that when makers are putting together the items that they're crafting, they select a whole bunch of stuff. They select components and energy. There's also a, a bit about what you can turn into objects, which is interesting. I'll talk on the, about that in just a minute. But one of the things he mentions is that uh, you're, you're going to be setting some sort of level for the object that you're creating as well as its capabilities. Uh, and levels range from... 1 to 17, because this is Invisible Sun. So instead of a nice <laughs> 1 to 10 scale, we're going up to 17 here. Yeah, I think he even said that it's it's 1 to 10, except really it's 17. <laughs> uh, so it may be that 1 to 10 is our normal reckoning of levels, something that's close to the same type of, of level system as the Cypher system, but that this has the equivalent of superheroic levels, or, or the Gods of the Fall levels that go beyond 10? It, it's quite possible. But 17 is one of the big numbers that they were always hitting in the in the Kickstarter. Because you have yes. the 17 sides of the suns. So who knows? That We'll find out at some point what the levels actually are. 
But makers are going to be defining what their objects can do and what their levels are going to be. So I, I have a feeling that, yeah, it's not going to be traditional spellcasting in the sense that I'm going to cast Magic Missile or Fireball or Charm Person. But I have a f- what, what I'm sort of feeling here is that you're going to be creating some sort of item and you're going to get a certain number of uses out of it and it's going to do this task. So maybe that task is going to be, hey, it shoots magic missiles and it does that a certain number of times. That might be a little bit too straightforward uh, in what I'm interpreting, but you know that's, that's one way that they could go about doing it. I suspect that will at least be an option for what you can do as a maker. Yeah, uh, they do say that you can make weapons. So maybe you just craft a magic sword and there you go. You got your magic sword. Another example they have is uh, maybe you create uh, a bunch of simulacra and you use those to perform plays in order to you know, achieve some sort of goal. Or maybe you build a building that has thousands of mouths that are all speaking unknown words and it achieves some sort of goal that you're reaching for. They also create an example. They say, hey, maybe it's a vehicle that you create that tops from raindrop to raindrop, and you can build that in order to travel through storms and things like that. Another fun little tidbit about stuff you can turn into objects. It's not just taking your spells and turning them into something physical. You are are taking your spells and you're putting components into them And there are all sorts of things you can use to create that. And some of their examples were energy. Sure, yeah, you can take energy and turn it into spells. Or, hey, maybe you can even take uh, spirits and turn spirits into spells. Okay, that sounds interesting. That's a bit strange. Then there's also, you can take demons and people and turn those into objects that would do things for you. Um, I think one of the little bits of flavor text they have in the Kickstarter page is um, they have a maker who created a gun uh, by using a demon and it shoots, it it only shoots, oof, I'd have to look it up again, but it was something like infected people. It wasn't infected though. But hey, if you can turn all that stuff into objects, maybe, maybe you can take a god and turn it into an object. I think they even referenced that. Yeah, I believe there was a reference to uh, a maker who uh, met a god, uh, turned the god into a tie that he only wears on religious holidays. That's a good way to observe that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I think that what this creates is the possibility of of a crafting sub-game. So if the the Vance order uh, required a sort of visual spatial representation of the mind in order to maximize what kind of spells you could fit together and, and retain, uh, as well as the options of, of casting and retaining the spells and all the sort of memory subgame, uh, very kind of a traditional Vancey and magic subgame for, for ma- uh, magic users. In this case, uh, it almost hints at uh, more like an MMO crafting subgame where you, ha- you, you want to find recipes and then what you produce may depend in part upon what sort of materials you use to create the, uh, these recipes. So a gun made out of a fiery demon might be quite different than one out of an ice demon uh, or one out of 
um, a, you know, a fairy or something along those lines. Uh, you could will create a system whereby the players who don't want to worry about memorizing spells and casting spells instead worry about collecting interesting ingredients for crafting and c- collecting interesting recipes they could use uh, to make objects. Yeah, and you could you could set up a whole series of quests to to go out and find rare and unusual components to put together, uh, so that you could you know fuel your maker's desire to build something really interesting. Which reminds me of uh, one of the characters in the D and D campaign that I recently ran. Uh, he would collect all sorts of interesting stuff, and by the end of the game, he had a unicorn's head in a bag of holding. And they used that to destroy a lich's phylactery. So that was kind of like a little subquest, like, oh, we need to take care of this lich. Well, one way to do it, what if we had a unicorn's head and smashed it through the phylactery? Absolutely, and I, I, I can also see the the fun in the games leading up to that of you know let's let's not waste this unicorn head. Let's well, I don't know what we'll use it for, but we should save it for later. The video about makers uh, also references the levels for components and you might use components that have higher levels in order to make the actual crafting a bit easier so the the leveling system is going to be in there as well and it sounds like you know you're going to be able to manipulate that uh, and you know put components in in order to reduce the difficulty of actually crafting this thing that you're trying to put together yeah i suspect the crunchy bits of the system are going to be level based that you need to have some some amount of some level of ingredients to make some level of artifact, uh, but that the flavor bits that we left to each game to define for itself is how what are the what's the content of those requirements and what do they actually look like what do they represent and why do they combine to create this this artifact so uh, it has a lot of narrative depth that you can play with. Yeah, and going on the history of uh, Monty Cook's games, uh, Monty. The, the company and Bonnie Cook himself, uh, they they try not try not to get too bogged down in the mechanics of putting this stuff together. So I have a feeling that you know the the narrative components of hey this is an ice demon or this is a fire demon, it's not going to be so much of a mechanical difference. It'll just be more of a narrative difference. And rather than having tables and tables of all the different things you can do with one demon versus another. It might just have a section that says, hey, you know, determine what you want it to do, work it out with the GM, and there you go. That's what it does. Yeah, and that fits with the flavor of the game as a whole. Mm -hmm. So a little bit more about the order of the makers. They're going to be a loosely knit order that doesn't meet very often. However, when they do, most of the time when they meet up in, you know, groups, they are going to be showing off their latest creations. This, to me, sounds a lot like a a science fair of sorts. So everybody gets together, and they show off what they've been working on, and they say, hey, look at this cool thing that I've been working on. Uh, Look what I put together. Here's how I did it. You know, uh, so there's a whole bunch of knowledge sharing, and maybe it's something like a flea market where people are swapping their uh, items that they've crafted with each other and looking for, you know, something really rare that this one maker who rarely shows up in Saturine has has brought along this time. It reminds me um, of of a, a bygone era before the age of Best Buy and before the World Wide Web, uh, when the people who were interested in computers, uh, at least in the Dallas area, literally met under a bridge for a, it's kind of like a swap meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 
But people would also use that as an opportunity to show off the new software they had written or the new computer they put together or stuff that they had actually created as part of this early uh, home computing culture. Uh, that's kind of the sense I get of the order of makers. They, they probably meet somewhere somewhat concealed to compare what they've made, knowing that most people really don't care uh, or wouldn't appreciate it, but that they have their own culture and their own community that they like to catch up on and to get ideas from other makers. Mm -hmm. Very briefly, I've been messing around with the with some ideas for the orders of make for the order of makers. I've been running a bit of a pregame lead up to Invisible Sun for my group. And one of the things I put together for them was a reverse geocache. And it was, the, the conceit behind it was, it was a magical box that allowed transference of items from one sun to another in a very subtle and quick fashion and secure fashion. So this is um, an artifact that I was able to give to my players and have them take it to a certain location before it would actually unlock and give them uh, information about the, the puzzles that they were working on. Another thing that I've got in, in the fiction that I'm working with is this thing called The Messenger. It's not a, a very creative title. Um, what this thing does is that it allows the maker who crafted it to send messages from one son to another one. But the way that these messages manifest in the gray sun is that they show up on Twitter. So I've got uh, my gray maker talking to my players over Twitter, which which has been interesting and quite a bit of fun. I like, I like that. That, sound, that does sound like fun. Yeah, I've been impressed by the breadth of options for the makers. When, when I first heard of it, I guess because of the limitation of my own imagination, I thought of makers as artificers from Dungeons and Dragons. You know, they'll they'll brew potions and they'll build mm -hmm. devices that replicate spells. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's interesting in its own right. But the descriptions make me see that it's it's going to be more than that, and it might be a whole lot more than that. It might even represent things like a modified version of Elric of Melnabone from the Michael Moorcock books. One, one way to think of him is you could think of him as a, he's, he's a mage, but think of him as a, his magic being focused in almost entirely around this artifact he carries around. Uh, and so you could have a character whose magic, they basically operate through a particular item that they, that they continually invest in and upgrade and use as the focus for their magic. And that might be a maker. It doesn't have to be kind of steampunky uh, or sort of, you know, you're not necessarily making automatons, though, you know, that's just an another version of makers. But the, ma the maker category mm -hmm. includes more than I had initially imagined. Yeah, I guess uh, slightly related would be Dr. Strange. A lot of his power comes from the Eye of Agamotto and the Cloak of Levitation. Mm -hmm. uh, but he didn't build those himself, so it's not quite the same. Not, not quite the same, but it's still a, a similar notion. Like if you if you press go at the start of any particular story, to the extent that his magic flows through the artifacts, it's going to look a lot like what a maker's story would be like. Mm -hmm. It's the the pre-story uh, creation that might be different, but for any individual session, that's that might be the sense of what you have, where you, you're a, you're a magician, but your magi your magic works through these items rather than being um, either rotes that you have memorized uh, or uh, demons that you summon or or, or the other uh, mechanisms that the other orders rely upon. But it it just it includes a wide variety of options that I hadn't initially considered. So I'm excited to see what they do about it. Yeah, I, I'm excited to see, you know, what sort of interesting ideas players can come up with that are outside of the box of just like weapons and 
items that do a specific function. Cool. So that's the order of makers. Well, we've, we've seen two orders so far in our discussion, uh, and they are d- pretty mm-hmm. dramatically different. And as we go through uh, future segments, we'll see uh, the future orders. We've got the Goetics, the Weavers, and the Apostates. Uh, and we'll be able to continue the conversation about how broad are these categories uh, and how distinct are they from each other. But we, we've got a lot to talk about. Sure do. In a distant light pierces the mist, we discussed inspirations for our Invisible Sun games. In this segment, we will discuss the first volume of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. The Sandman has become pretty famous uh, in comic book circles, uh, and really more broadly within uh, urban fantasy and modern fantasy circles as a landmark graphic novel and and, uh, comic book series. It's sometimes hard to remember what comics were like before Sandman, not that it individually changed the game, but it was part of a movement of a number of authors in a number of, that, that were writing more or less simultaneously that really brought comics the legitimacy that they had been lacking for the decades before. We previously talked about Morrison's Doom Patrol, though that's much more of a comic for comic book fans. Neil Gaiman's Sandman becomes sort of a, a, a crossover uh, between comic book uh, fans and and uh, fantasy fiction fans more broadly, so it's it's important in that respect. But also, I th- uh, we thought that this is a, a book that has potential inspiration uh, for our Invisible Sun games. So it was worth talking about. And plus, it's just so darn good uh, that it's worth talking about. And if you haven't read it, we strongly recommend it. And today, we're just going to talk mostly about the first volume entitled Preludes and Nocturnes. Um, we may talk incidentally about other parts of the of the series, uh, but we'll try to focus our, our, our discussion on the uh, on this first volume. Let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, this is the first major work, first ongoing series written by Neil Gaiman. He had previously written a sh- uh, a mini series for DC Comics called Black Orchid, uh, which is pretty obscure and wasn't ex- exceptionally well advertised at the time, but it was well received. Um, but based on the quality of that work, uh, he was given this option to write an ongoing series. But they basically offered him characters no one else wanted to work with. Uh, he asked to write uh, for Constantine. Went, nope, nope, that's already taken. Someone's working on that. Uh, said, okay, uh, maybe I can do the uh, Sandman, the Jack Kirby character. Nope, nope, that person's already spoken for. He's over on the JSA. And so he went through a number of, of possibilities until finally he said, well, how about I create a new character for this idea that's called Sandman, but it's not the same character as that that Kirby Justice Society character. And the editor liked his pitch enough to say, we'll, we'll take a shot at it. So we start uh, the actual ongoing series in late 1988. I think the cover date was actually January 1989, but that means it was on the shelves of comic book stores like in November 1988. This was, uh, again, I I think back, this is before Vertigo was actually a brand. This was just a DC comic book. This and Swamp Thing, and very soon after or about the same time, uh, John Constantine uh, Hellblazer were just comic books. And they were on the shelf right next to Superman and were sold as all part of the same universe uh, and were uh, just kind of odd DC comic books because they didn't have the same flavor. These were all three of these books were fantasy oriented, horror oriented comics that set themselves apart from the traditional superhero fare. 
It's also important to emphasize that at this point, uh, Neil Gaiman was just a dude. This was a guy writing his first ongoing comic book. He was not the star he is now. Now, at this point, he's won countless fantasy writing awards for his prose, for his comic books. He is you know, a luminary in fantasy writing. But in 1988, he was a former journalist who wrote a book about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And that was basically his resume. So he didn't get into the the big fiction stuff that he did until after Sandman? No, no. He um, The first fiction I remember seeing from him was a collection of short stories, and that was already at least maybe two years into Sandman. Okay. And his books, like American Gods, uh, were, sev- were, were, were later than that. Uh, American, uh, American Gods comes later. Um, or Do I get those, those names mixed up? I know there's American Gods um, and then the book with, with Terry Pratchett. There was Neverwhere, American Gods, and uh, Anasazi Boys. Yeah, there was, but there's one with Terry Pratchett that's really, really good, uh, and I can't remember the name right now. But those, oh, those yeah, did I, all. I remember. Yeah, those all came later. I can tell you all the stuff about the plot. And I can't remember the name right now. <laughs> I don't have a copy of it because I've given them all away. It's so good that whenever I hear one of my friends has not read it, I just give them my copy. Uh, as a result, I've bought at least five copies of this book that I can't remember the name of right now. <laughs> but no, the, the prose writing came later. Uh, and though, I mean, he'd written before. I said he was a journalist beforehand, and he'd written a, a book about uh, the history and cult context of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I think it's mm-hmm. titled Don't Panic. So he was a writer, but he wasn't Neil Gaiman yet, uh, as he's, he's known now. Uh, but we see in the first volume of Sandman him starting down the road to become that writer. I think I think he starts off on that foot immediately, because uh, one thing that I've always, when I think of Neil Gaiman and the work that he's done, he's always dealing with you know mythology, and he's taking pieces from different mythologies and just sort of mashing them together and churning out a story. And in this case, uh, the Sandman has stuff from all sorts of different mythologies, just all together immediately. So it feels like Neil Gaiman right from the first page. Yes, and one I think one of the names for Sandman that's mentioned maybe only once in the first volume is that he's the prince of stories. And that mm-hmm. becomes not an, not an important plot point, but a thematic point for the entire series. In some sense, the entire series is about storytelling and storytellers. And it breaks one of my rules, um, especially in film, I find films about filmmaking to typically be tedious and self-important oh so you're not a big uh day for night uh Uh, fan no no not so much or uh (laughs) what's uh being john malkovich was i thought okay Uh, i forgot the follow-up to that Uh, but yeah these these movies that are about how uh, terrible and beautiful and awesome it is to be a, a filmmaker, uh, especially a, a script writer. I, I find to be tedious more often than not. But something about this story, even if it's a story about storytellers, I mm-hmm. really find engaging because it, it is about storytelling at an elemental level. It, because it's maybe maybe it's because it does go back to mythology, and it builds on mythology and how mythology resonates with us throughout cultures across the world and, and through time. Uh, and, he's, and he also, dem- like, from the very beginning, demonstrates his flexibility uh, and his interest in storytelling uh, technique. 
in that the first this first volume he varies the tone and and style of comic book that he's using to tell his stories throughout the arc. So the first issue, for example, is very much in the tone of an old British horror story, mm-hmm. uh, and I think of it, I think as very much in the EC Comics pre, especially pre-code horror comics mode. It, the art is represented that way. The language he chooses is uh, reflects that approach. Uh, it is really just an EC comic, kind of uh, all the way down to the characters he chooses from House of Mystery and House of Suspense, which are kind of the follow-ups to EC comic era. Uh, I think if you might think of the movie Creepshow was a movie based on the EC comics era, but that's the mm-hmm. sort of storytelling he's going after, and I think and succeeding uh, in using for the early part of this arc. Uh, but he then pivots, and later in the arc, it becomes a contemporary horror comic, much more like we might think of a Hellblazer comic book uh, or a later Swamp Thing comic book, where it's uh, much much more contemporary in how it tells a story. But the transition is, is, if not seamless, it's clearly deliberate and well-handled. So he switches to that when he brings in Hellblazer? Exactly. So I, I wanted to mention very briefly before we move on, you had mentioned the use of art in the first issue and a lot of the art in here is sam keith's the first half yes yeah and i I think it's very important that we we bring up sam keith and his art and his art style uh because i think a lot of the stuff that he's done here in sandman and also on his one of more one of his more well-known books the max Mm -hmm. uh he does a lot of surrealist art like he's got landscapes and characters and all sorts of things that I think would fit very well in an Invisible Sun campaign. Oh yes, and I, I think that some of the and I think I'm sure Neil Gaiman said things very much along these lines. Some of the early success of Sandman was based a great deal on the work that Sam Keith did, particularly in the his depiction of hell in I think it's the third issue, where the landscapes of hell are are, are fascinating and detailed because Sam Keith is notoriously detailed in his art, almost to the Jeff Darrow extreme of detail, and you have a surreal hellscape. Uh, that's uh, it. Just shows the it, it showed readers of the comic at the time that they were seeing something new, something different uh, than what they would expect from other kind of more superheroic fare. Yeah, there's a, a splash page in the issue when he goes to hell that is just filled with bizarre-looking demons and creatures, and it's fantastic. There's so much stuff in here that. If you're trying to come up with ideas uh, or descriptions of strange-looking creatures, just hit this splash, pa- splash page, pick out a demon, and just <laughs> just describe it as best you can. Though I should warn people, um, it depends on which which version of the comic you get. I don't know when the change took place, but sometime between the original issue and the uh, absolute big uh, oversized hardcover, they redid that that splash page in order to make the detail come out. Uh, they recolored it. They, it's, yes, I, th- I think they may have done some re-inking as well, but I think they mostly recolored it. And this may have been some of why Sam Keith ended up leaving because it, his pencils were not reflected in the initial publication of that, that issue. There was so much more detail there that the coloring in particular just splashed over and, and rendered indistinct. The story in the um, one of the essays that Neil Gaiman talks about this volume is that uh, you know Sam Keith was you know, he, he attributes a lot of the success to Sam Keith, but he just, Sam Keith just didn't feel like they were on the same page. 
that they wanted to tell the same story. And uh, the phrase that Sam Keith used was he felt like he was Jimi Hendrix on the Beatles. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not that Jimi Hendrix or the Beatles are bad. It's just that they probably shouldn't be playing together. And uh, the the bios in the back of the edition that I have of the hardcover just lists Sam Keith lives in California. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some tension there. Uh, and it might be because of that, that mishandling of the art in that third issue in particular, because he cuts out somewhere around that issue and just uh, and is replaced um, by Mike Drenchenberg, which is uh, who is an, uh, an excellent artist in his own right. Yeah, it's too bad that Sam Keith didn't stick around on it because his his art's I love it. Um, yeah, and the, I I just picked up the uh, you know the trade last week, and they proclaim on the bottom it is the fully recolored edition. So I'm guessing mm-hmm. that I've got the the art that uh, you know they were shooting for. Yes, so I I just wanted to warn people that if they're looking for editions, uh, check before they jump in and expect to see this beautiful splash page. Check that you have one of the recolored editions to make sure that you do have the best representation of that page. Because you're right, it is it is a gold mine of inspiration, and really the the backgrounds and landscapes for that entire issue uh, are that way. Yeah, specifically for like horrific, surreal landscapes and creatures. Yes. Well, this is we, we haven't gone over the plot very much, and, and I don't think we necessarily have to. Uh, but this is uh, when Sandman is visiting Hell to reclaim uh, his 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 helmet, mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, a surreal representation of Hell is, as one might expect, quite vivid. Potentially useful for a, a role playing game, which we expect there to be magic and conflict. So I, I'm stuck on the art for you know representations of surrealism here, mm-hmm. uh, and I think another. I guess the the art and kind of the story sort of weave together this this sort of theme of you know surrealistic horror. If you go to the the previous issue when John Constantine shows up when the Sandman is trying to get his pouch of sand back, they end up wandering through a house, and it's basically a chamber of horrors. And at one point, John Constantine gets pulled into what appears to be a dream, but he can't tell if it is or isn't, which, I mean, that's kind of the definition of surrealism, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And it gets back to the connection between surrealism and dream, which isn't perfect correspondence, but there's a close connection between them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be worth going back a little bit over the chronology of the actual plot, Um, though I guess before we leave the topic of art, uh, I do also want to uh, emphasize the covers by Dave McKean represent some uh, amazing works of surrealist art. Uh, I'm lucky enough that one of one of my friends who is uh, positively obsessed with Sandman and Neil Gaiman owns some original uh, Dave McKean art. And what, one of the most interesting things about it is you can see how he produces the art by looking at the originals because he doesn't just paint this. It's usually some combination of of, of painting and collage and photography and he layers all of these things together to juxtapose uh, real images like say a black and white photograph which mm-hmm. is then painted over and and combined with some other image and he uses all of this mixed method which is, is, is itself a, an early surrealist methodology for creating art uh, and and it results in covers that are are amazing and so i, I want to, you know, to recommend people take some time to, to look at the cover uh, covers of the issues which can sometimes be skipped over in the collected volumes because people are jumping from page to from from issue to issue but do take some time to look at the covers because they're just gorgeous so we we have a lot of you know really great art to pull from here 
Uh, is there anything else in Preludes and Nocturnes that we should be looking at for Invisible Sun as inspiration? Well, I, I think uh, one thing I'd like to talk, it, it, very briefly talking about the, the plot and how it might be inspiring for Invisible Sun is that the, the basic plot is that the Sandman is the representation of dream. But in, towards the end of World War I, he is captured in a magical circle by a magician who's a little in over, a little over his head, thinking he's capturing death. <laughs> uh, as a result, Dream is basically taken out of circulation, controlling the dreams of humanity from World War I through 1988. This might be particularly interesting to us for Invisible Sun for several reasons. First, uh, there's the connection between this World War I era and the loss of dream and the emergence of surrealist art not long after that in France uh, and in, in continental Europe. And so you see, in, in some ways, uh, in the timeline of the Sandman, surrealism is the reaction to the loss of the controlling influence of Morpheus and dream uh, on the dreaming of humanity. So there's a connection in the plot to, surreal, to the surrealist art movement. And the notion mm -hmm. that over the decades following World War I, we've lost control of something. Our dreams lost content, lost coherence, and became in some sense more dangerous. And that might be part or similar to the surrealist and Dadaist argument that rationalism and the enlightenment kind of died in World War I. That we, until World War I, people believed that history was the inevitable march towards greatness and equality and prosperity for all. And World War I showed that even in a so-called enlightened rational era of manufacturing and technology, um, we just became really, really good at killing our, each other at, at a much faster rate. Uh, and so it kind of it destroyed the, the idealistic dream of, of the rational project. And that's somewhat uh, what uh, this, uh, this the timeline means in Sandman as well, that our, our dream was lost in World War I, and now we're seeking to recover it. This connects specifically to the plot, what little we know of it, of the setting of Invisible Sun. Because we do know that Invisible Sun takes place after what is referred to as the war. Which damaged Saturn, mm -hmm. you know, very badly and has left, I can't remember the name of uh, the cysts of war scattered about the city. Right. It's left all these remnants and it, it led to the scattering of the Vizlai into the gray. Mm -hmm. uh, so... We are in Invisible Sun coming out of this great and damaging war, forgetting who we were and having to reconstruct a new world and a new ideology. So, you know, the the glamorous or, you know, ideologically or, or in, you know, this notion that 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 rationality and the Enlightenment was an unquestioned good that was going to lead us inevitably towards paradise was shattered in World War One. And then we have to recon after World War One. We have to reconstruct. Well, what is our what is what what guides us now? If technology isn't going to save us, how do we save ourselves? I strongly suspect there will be a similar theme in Invisible Sun mm -hmm. that whatever it was that culminated in the war, we're going to be picking up the pieces and having to create a new world. And so we 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 have a sense of that in the Sandman, where he is initially having to reconstruct his path his power gather the items that he had previously invested power into. 
much like a maker, mm-hmm. um, and use that power to reestablish himself and to event- begin his, his process of reestablishing control over dreams, uh, not in the sense of telling people what to dream, but in the sense of regulating the process of dreaming uh, to make it a more healthy and um, kind of reliable process. And so that might be very much what a story in Invisible Sun is like. We're picking ourselves up after the war. We're having to reconstruct community, reconnect Vizlai that have, that have become alienated into the gray, and figure out how do we create a new world that isn't vulnerable to the same uh, processes that led to the war in the first place. So we can use the Sandman's story here as inspiration for this is what it might look like for a Vizlai returning after the war and coming to terms with this whole new world that is unfamiliar to them. Yes. And one thing uh, this, this just reminded me, uh, they've previously said that, you know, everyone's going to have a house mm-hmm. and part of your character is going to be a house, much like Sandman has the uh, house of mystery, which is in disrepair. He has to rebuild it. Uh, but they also mentioned in a tweet last week, I believe it was Shauna mentioned she loves her, her, um, her character, she loves her house, and she loves her neighborhood, which I True. think suggests they may be having, they may include a system or a component of the game where you build a community around your house, you're building your neighborhood. And so we, we might have the framework in the first volume of Sandman of a superb initial arc for an Invisible Sun character. It's a character who has been banished to the gray for so long they cannot remember, but they've become aware again of their magical potential, but they have Mm -hmm. to rebuild their magic, they have to rebuild their house, and they have to rebuild their community in order to really uh, kind of control what might be rogue magic uh, and to reconstruct magic uh, in our world to try in such a way that we don't reproduce the war. Well, it's a good place to start. (laughs) If nothing else, just reading, especially the first issue, um, having read this so many, many times, but rereading it again this week, the the first issue of Sandman is such a fantastic initial issue. It is complete in itself. It tells a story, but it launches everything. It creates a world. And I think it's a wonderful inspiration for how we should start campaigns. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I'm going to be reading more Sandman because it is <laughs> it is great. We may have to come back to it in future segments. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from Drive Through RPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Dr. Scott Robinson on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Uh, and if you if you like what you hear, uh, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hear it helps people find our show. Uh, or else, tell a friend about the show, which is another great way to get the word out and get more people listening. Mm-hmm.